Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, as the words of that song echo in our minds and our hearts, resonate with the reality that were it not for you and were it not for your love for us, we would have nothing. And therefore, hallelujah, all we have is Christ. Lord, we need that reminder every day. We need to be preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. Not because we need to be saved again and again and again, but because we need to be reminded of what it took to save us, that we might live for You. That we might live with the understanding and the acknowledgement that all we have is Christ. There's nothing else needed, nothing else necessary. He is sufficient for every need. And so we come to your word with that in our minds and our hearts, knowing that in Christ we have the spirit of you living in us and we can understand what you say, what you mean by what you say, that we might live for Christ. So use your word upon us this day to examine our hearts, to challenge us where we need to, and to begin to put into practice the very truths and implications of those truths that we are reminded of this morning. Bless our time. Unto your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would open your Bibles with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. We are taking one final look at the churches of Asia Minor and the effects of apostasy upon the church. Of course, over the last several months, we have been looking at this issue in light of Jude's exhortation to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints as we have studied through the book of Jude. And We've come to Revelation because of the examples for us here through Revelation chapter 2 and 3 of the churches. And they're listed for us really by inspiration of the Holy Spirit through the Apostle John, and they are listed in this large geographical circle, if you will, in which they are located. And this morning I want us to look at the seventh or the last in our Lord's evaluation of the churches. This is the most southeastern of them all by way of geography, and it's known by its name, Laodicea. Laodicea. It, of course, as we know from our previous study, this is just another real, actual church location. This is the early church in the city of Laodicea. And this evaluation by the Lord Jesus Christ is directed at this particular location, the, the location of the church in Laodicea. But, but from our study, we also know that what it says to Laodicea, it is saying by way of principle and through picture form, if you will, to many a church today. It is a picture of evaluation, a picture of evaluation in many ways for the church at large, but in particular because here we are in Chester, New Hampshire and Fellowship Bible Church, it is an evaluation of us. And so as we hear the words of Christ scrutinizing this church in Laodicea, we ought to be having the same words scrutinize each one of us because we are the church. We individually, together, collectively make up the church. We are the church, the body of Christ. And as we have seen throughout our study of both Jude and of these churches, beginning in Revelation chapter 2, all of these letters are written to all of us. They are not simply just historical facts that we can read about and go, gee, that's nice. Look at these places and look at the troubles they had. These are written to us, and therefore we have been exhorted through each one of these examples to pay heed to the very words that we have heard. We have heard these words several times. He who has ear, 
let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So just by that very essence, what is being written here isn't specifically and only for these various churches. It is for anyone who hears the words that are written to these churches. He whose ears have been opened by Jesus Christ through faith. Right? This is to those who can hear, to the Christian that are receiving this and have receptivity to truth because our eyes have been opened, our ears have been loosed. We must hear. We must hear. And the implication of just hearing is that we will obey what Christ, through the Holy Spirit, says to each one of these churches, you and I as individual Christians, and we as a collective body of Christians will put these things into practice. So this is for all of us. This is the best kind of medicine. This is proactive medicine for the church. And the Lord's evaluation has been both encouraging, as we have studied several of these churches, but it's also have been shocking. It's been rather shocking. Because there is faithfulness in these churches, and yet we have seen compromise in these churches. We have seen sinful toleration of other sin in these churches. We have seen, or at least heard of, the lack of devotion to Christ in the church in Ephesus. You read through there and you even see deadness characterizing one of the churches. That it's a dead church. But now we come to what I believe to be the worst consequence of them all by means of the influence of apostasy in the church. The worst of them all. This is the lukewarm church. I prefer to call it the church of apathetic Christianity. The church of apathetic Christianity. Why do I believe it to be the worst? Because apathetic Christianity, lukewarmness, as John puts it here through the words of Jesus, is always disguised as mature Christianity. Apathetic Christianity always comes in the packaging of being mature Christianity, and thereby its poison is so much more powerful to the destruction of souls. You say, well, why is that? Because most often, apathetic Christianity is not real Christianity at all. In other words, it is religion... It is a religion that focuses itself in and around Jesus Christ, in and around the words of Jesus Christ, in and around the the scope and the realm of Jesus Christ, but very often there is no relationship with Jesus Christ at all. It's religion on the outside, but no inward relationship. The Laodicean church had many apathetic Christians. So much so that their collective character here is revealed by Christ as being lukewarm. Lukewarm. Now just an interesting side note, by the way. I want us to turn back to the book of Colossians for a minute. Because the Apostle Paul addresses... um, some very interesting issues when it comes to the Colossian church, but he also in that addresses or mentions the church in Laodicea. In Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I've had on your behalf. Right? Paul is writing to, to the believers in Colossae about 
their understanding of Jesus Christ. They're living for Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? There was a great struggle there in Colossae in reference to the deity of Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul mentions this so often in the book of Colossians, and therefore then living in light of an understanding of that. And he says, I I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea. It's interesting that Colossae was in a similar frame that it seems that even Laodicea may have been in. And he says, and for all of those who have not personally seen my face, uh, I'm concerned about you, what? That your hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding that results in a true knowledge of God's mystery. What is that? That is Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So he says, listen to you Colossian believers. You you have something I'm concerned for you. I've been praying for you. I, I really would love to be there with you. You haven't seen my face, but I want you to be encouraged. I want your hearts to be encouraged that in Christ you have everything you need because in Christ is all wisdom and all knowledge. He is everything he has claimed to be. He is everything he ever said to be. And I'm not only concerned about you, but I'm concerned just as much for those in Laodicea. Go back to Revelation chapter 3 now, because that gives us a little bit of an idea of what was happening here in this church. Many in Laodicea were like those in the days when Jesus was ministering in Jerusalem and the surrounding region in Israel, they had rejected Jesus. They had a sincerity about their religion. They were very staunch in their Judaism. They were very staunch in their religion that they were walking according to, but it wasn't according to knowledge. It wasn't according to understanding. And today, within the church, there's a whole host of people who have been infected, as Paul says in Colossians, by the worldly philosophies. He cautions the Colossian believers, as I'm sure he cautioned the Laodicean believers, about not being taken captive by the philosophies of men. You find today in the church, there's a whole host of people who have been infected by worldly philosophies, particularly under the guise of what is now known as critical race theory and wokeism and all this other nonsense that's being thrown at us. These worldly philosophies have crept into the church. And in Laodicea, it was no different and today's church. It's no different. And in their lives, they live like the world, yet they claim Christ. In their lives, they carry out themselves in their thinking and in their ideas and in their philosophies, just exactly what the world is carrying out. They bring it all into the church under the guise of of still being a Christian. They could be labeled apathetic Christians. They're religious people. They carry in their hands the Word of God. They walk into places with this high-minded idea of Christianity. They carry about the truth of Christ in their very personhood on their electronic devices, and they gladly will turn to things. They have an intellectual understanding about what God has given concerning saving faith and even repentance. They certainly will talk about heaven and hell. They know the truth about sin Most are truly sincere people in their religion. But like those of Israel's day, like some in Colossae, like many in Laodicea, they are headed for destruction. Why? Because they're very busy being religious, but they reject the truth. They're very busy about the things that that seem as if they're saved people or religious people at least, but they reject the truth. They have Bibles, but by their very lives, they show that they don't really believe it. They certainly don't obey it. They're simply apathetic Christians. Many of them don't even know Christ at all. 
So what is apathy? What is apathy? Well, apathy, by definition, is just this, a lack of interest. A lack of interest. A lack of enthusiasm for whatever it is you're apathetic to. A lack of concern. In essence, it's a lack of sobriety, if you will, personal seriousness about the things of God, if we're going to put it into the terminology or into the context in which we're talking about this morning. Well, Jesus here in Revelation chapter 3 is describing this illustration to us of apathy through the Laodicean church. The Laodicean church is an illustration of an apathetic church. A church of apathetic Christianity, if it can even be called Christian. Now, you probably remember out of the seven churches listed here, particularly from our study of Revelation some years ago, those listed here in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, there were only two actually good churches. That's a pretty sad percentage when you think about the evaluation of the church at large. Two out of these seven were good churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia. The Lord doesn't have anything negative to say about them. You want to read about churches that that remain well? Read about Smyrna, read about the church in Philadelphia. The, the, the one overarching thing he does commend them for is their faithfulness. They were continually faithful to what the Lord had, had shown them, to walk with him, to trust him in all that they did, and their lives revealed that. They loved the word of God. Why? Because they loved the God of the word. That's why. The other five were tainted in some way because of apostasy. And they seem to go from bad to worse when you look at them. Ephesus lost its devotion to Christ. They, they had lost their first love, remember? Pergamum that we looked at compromised with the world. They were, they were buying into the same kind of teaching that Balaam used in the Old Testament with Israel and infiltrated the world with, the, with, the, with themselves, thinking that the world wouldn't change them, that they would change the world, and in fact the world changed them. Thyatira, of course, redefined forgiveness. They redefined forgiveness and became uh, the church of toleration. They tolerated sin under the guise that they were just super spiritual people, that they just overlooked things. We didn't take a look at Sardis, but the church in Sardis was so far gone that it was characterized as being dead. It was a dead church. And now here is Laodicea, and it is the church of the lukewarm, apathetic Christian. And it's truly tragic, really, because, because of all the churches, right, of all those he commended, some he said, Philadelphia and Smyrna, good churches. Uh, Sardis is a dead church. And of all the other churches, he at least has something good to say. And yet here of Laodicea, he has nothing, nothing good to say about this church. At least, at least with all the others, there was something that seemed to shine. In fact, even in Sardis, even in the dead church, there were some within the church who had not succumbed to the corporate character. There were some who were standing against even the deadness in the church. They were a shining bright light even amongst all the deadness. But here in Laodicea, he says nothing good. Nothing. Not one commendation at all. So beginning in verse 14 down through verse 22 is our text for this morning. And I want to read it for us and then just begin to walk through it together. The Lord Jesus says, And to the angel of the church at Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. 
So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may become rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and the eye salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and I will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. And I also, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. This is, this is a rather fascinating text. And as we begin, there are, there are three facts about this city in Laodicea, or the city of Laodicea, that I think are relevant for us to know. Three, three facts about them that help us understand this scathing evaluation that Christ has for them. Number one is this, Laodicea was known throughout the region for its enormous wealth. It was a wealthy wealthy place. Gold, being uh, prevalent in the time, was imported from all over greater Asia. Remember, this is Asia Minor, so all over the greater continent of Asia, there was gold that was brought to Laodicea, and it was brought there in order that it might be refined in the smelt, smelting areas of Laodicea, and then stamped for its purity. And because of that, Laodicea became a center and a, of banking, really. It was a, an economic center for banking and the exchange of currency, almost like what we have here in America, where we have the World Bank and all these other kinds of things that uh, have become an icon for the world in reference to uh, economic prosperity. In fact, the Laodiceans, historians tell us, that it boasted so much in its wealth that in the uh, early years uh, of, of its existence, in fact, 17 A.D. and 61 A.D., the city was destroyed by earthquakes. And the Laodiceans were so financially proud that they refused financial help even from Rome and rebuilt to rebuild the city. They just wanted to do it on their own without any outside help. We don't need help from anybody. In fact, I think that's probably why Christ says here, and you have need of nothing. Your idea of you from the outside is that you can do it on your own. They were a rich place. But the second thing that we need to understand about them, apparently they were well known for their black wool. Black wool. They're, they were a, an agrarian society in many ways, and where it was located was apparently ideal for raising sheep. I've never raised sheep. Some of you here in this church used to have sheep. You understand what it means to raise sheep. And apparently the sheep were raised, they were bred to produce not white wool, but black wool. I, I never really knew that was something until I learned of this history about Laodicea. I, I've seen black sheep. We all sang the children's story, blah, blah, black sheep, or those kind of things. I didn't know that was something that was bred into them. But it was superior to white wool, apparently, and it became a, a highly sought-after um, commodity in the area. And in time, it became a symbol of wealth almost like someone wearing a Rolex watch today it becomes a symbol of status, right? I, I have this kind of uh, status. So if you wore clothes made with black wool, you were somebody. And of course, then third, Laodicea was, was also known for some of its medical advancements, particularly its medical advancements with medication for the eye, eye salve, 
and so people would come, uh, like in Pergamum that had a large school of medicine, Laodicea was known for its success for its ailments in those areas. And so people would come from all over the region to that area to get specific eye medication, things to cure or to help cure their eye problems. And so Laodicea was a city confident on its own resources. It had everything it ever needed. It had everything it could ever want. It was proud of its accomplishments, and thereby they saw themselves as having no need of anything beyond what they already had attained. And so there was this self-sufficient, self-made, we are okay with ourselves, we are okay by ourselves attitude that permeated the city of Laodicea. You talk about being individualistic, Laodicea was it. I mean, I know here in New England, there's this individualistic attitude that is carried with New Englanders, right? They, they don't ask for help. You know, you go to some New Englander, who's some staunch New Englander, and there's someone from the outside, so you can all say, okay, yeah, I, I, I may not see that, but this is the outside, right? You, somebody needs help. No, no, I'm all set. It's the idea, I'm all set. I got it. I'm okay. Right? There's this idea, well, Laodicea had that in spades. It was proud of its accomplishments and thereby had no need of having anything beyond what it already had attained for. And you notice then that this carried over into the church. This whole idea that was, was located geographically in the people of the area, also was then infiltrated into the church in Laodicea. And so you notice then that Christ first addresses this church with the same words that he uses with all the previous churches, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write. That's the same way he addresses all of them. I want you to specifically write to this church. And then he describes himself again with three specific titles. Notice what he says in verse 1. First, the amen, right? The amen. He is the amen. That's the idea, right? I want you to write this because the amen says this. That is simply to say that Christ is God's final word to men. You realize that's why we say that at the end of prayers? It's almost like a, an exclamation point. It's almost like a, a stamp. It, it's like a, um, someone saying, so it, let it be done. This is absolute. This is Christ. He is God's final word to man. We read from Isaiah 55 this morning. Listen to what Isaiah 65 verse 16 says. It says this, Because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth, And he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my sight. Now, of course, Isaiah is prophesying to Israel about the future to come in the millennial kingdom and the future with him. And he talks about truth. The word translated truth twice in that passage is the Hebrew word used for amen. Amen. They translated it truth. And it's the same word that is the word amen. The word describes something that is fixed, something that is unchangeable, something that is true. We will be blessed by the God of truth, the unchangeable God. We will be blessed by the God who is true. We will swear by the God of amen or or the God of truth, the unchangeable God, the fixed God. And so we can understand it this way. Christ, when he says the amen, Christ is saying to the church, and he's therefore saying to all of us, this is the final, fixed, unchangeable, true word of God to men. This is it. When God says it, that's it. Christ is The true, unchangeable Word of God. So God has nothing more to say than what He has said to us by means of and through Jesus Christ. He is the Amen of the Godhead. And secondly then, He says He is the faithful and true witness. The faithful and true witness says this. 
Not only is Christ the final word of God to all of man, right? Just like the Hebrews 1 tells us, He has spoken to us in many, or in the past in many ways, through many means, through visions and prophets and things like that, has spoken to us in these final days in His Son. That's the final word. So not only is Christ the final word to to men, but while on earth, He was the faithful and true witness for God. In fact, Christ was so absolutely trustworthy. Christ was so absolutely faithful in His witness to us that the Jews nailed Him to the cross for it. They took the hammer and nails and nailed Him to the cross for that testimony that He was about the trueness of what God had said and what God was to do. And so He's the final Word of God. He, what He testified about God is absolute true, absolutely faithful. And then notice He says thirdly that The beginning of the creation of God says this. That's just simply saying He's the source of all creation. He's the source of all creation. The final word of God says this. The faithful witness of God says this. The source of all creation says this. We cannot let the word translated here, beginning, the beginning, we cannot let that confuse us. We cannot let that say in our minds in any kind of way that Christ was created. That would be a heresy to say that. That was some of what the Apostle Paul was dealing with in the believers in Colossae, this whole idea of who Christ is, the deity of Jesus Christ. So when the Apostle Paul was addressing that church in Colossae, that's what he was dealing with, the heresy of the deity of Jesus Christ not being acknowledged. Colossae, believe it or not, was only 10 miles from Laodicea. Wasn't very far. It's like me driving to my house in Derry. 10 miles away. That's not far. This is the same heresy, by the way, beloved, that is prevalent today in places that call themselves churches like Mormonism and the Jehovah's Witnesses. They both say they believe in Jesus. They both say that Jesus is some, some kind of person But neither one believed that He's God. They both believe He's just a created being. That's rank heresy. And so the word beginning isn't speaking about Christ's beginning here. Rather, it's in the original language, the word arche, arche, which really carries the idea of meaning source or origin. And so we could translate this this way. You could could write it out this way and you would be fully in line with what the original language says. This is the one from whom all created things originated. Just as Colossians 1 says, in him are all things from whom all things were came into being. Nothing came into being that has come into being except through Jesus Christ. In other words, Christ is the source of all creation. So this is who is addressing the church. The final word of God, the truest and most faithful of all witnesses to the word of God, the very one from whom creation itself has had its beginning. That's who's addressing the churches. Now that's very authoritative, isn't it? There's nothing that could be higher than that. There's no greater authority than that. There's no other one who could be evaluating that with a greater sense of urgency than that very one who is addressing the church. And let us remind ourselves that he has nothing good to say about this church. You cannot say, well, wait a minute, let's get another opinion. Let's go get another choice. Let's go get a second word about it. It doesn't matter. This is the one that matters. And he says nothing good about the church. And so Christ here gives them a twofold condemnation. No commendation, just condemnation. Notice first, he says they are lukewarm. I know your deeds, verse 15, that you are neither hot, neither cold nor hot. 
I would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. They are lukewarm. We could say it another way. They are apathetic. They're apathetic to Christ. They, they, were, they were in a geographical location. Interestingly enough, we had Hierapolis that was to the north. They had hot springs in Hierapolis. They had very hot water, water that people would go to and take these hot spring baths. And then 10 miles away, you had Colossae. And Colossae, they had very crisp, cold water, fresh springs of cold water. Laodicea had no source of water. They had to rely on an aqueduct system that brought water from both places. And that water mixed together and just made it very tepid. It was lukewarm water. And so the church, interestingly enough, and metaphorically enough, Christ uses it, it was like that, and that kind of water made him sick. I was pausing here for a moment in my own mind as I was thinking about it this morning and thinking through this. Maybe this is just a lesson for us, a takeaway for us in the church of how not to make the Lord sick. You want to not make the Lord sick? Don't be lukewarm. Don't be lukewarm. Some churches bring delight to the heart of God. Some churches bring sadness to the heart of God. And even some might enrage Christ. But this church made him sick. Made him sick. They were spiritually apathetic to him. And and they were spiritually apathetic. There was a corporate apathy, and that corporate apathy was corporate apathy only because of individual apathy. There was apathy within the church as as a whole because there was apathy within individuals personally. One writer put it like this, quote, they were indifferent to doctrine. They were indifferent to truth. They were indifferent to the teaching of God. To the Laodiceans, he went on to say, the one church was just as good as another. They were all the same. No big deal. That is simply to say that they had a moral religion that only posed as the Christian faith. And that kind of religion only makes God sick. It makes him sick. By the way, it's, it's, it's sadly interesting because it says they weren't cold. They weren't cold. That would, that would be better. Strangely interesting that that would be better, and yet Christ is saying that would have been better because that would describe those who are completely without any affection for Christ at all. They show nothing on the outside. There's no interest in the things of even religion. They're cold. That would be better. Cold would be those who have no interest. Like the pagan world, where the place in which We live today even. There's no interest in that. And yet, by contrast, they're not hot either. They're not hot. Hot is the reality of truly knowing Christ. By the way, the word for hot here is zestos. Zestos. It it means to boil. It means to boil. to, To be fervent, if you will. You see, that's the condition, that's the condition of the heart that Christ expects in those who truly know Him. He wants us to be zestos, hot. In fact, notice in verse 19, He counsels those in Laodicea, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, be zealous, therefore, and repent. Be zealous. They were neither... I wish, Christ says, I wish you were either. I would that you were cold or hot. I'd rather have you on one of those extremes, one of those places, one of those places where where I could tell who you are. I'd prefer that. If you were cold, 
I'd know where you are. If you're hot, at least I'd know. I'm not saying that as if Christ wouldn't know. I'm saying that's preference, right? How hard is it to reach someone who thinks they're already saved when they're not saved at all? Christ says, that, that, that just makes me sick. You make me sick. You're in the middle. You're, you're just religious. You're religious. And to me, Christ says, that's a sickening condition. That's a sickening condition. I, 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 I'll spit you out of my mouth. That's frightening because the church had the truth. They had it. They had what was necessary in order to enrich them, in order to fan the flame, if you will. They had the wind of truth, but they didn't care. No biggie. They were just apathetic, indifferent, didn't care. Why? Well, I believe because of the second characteristic that he calls them out for. They were self-deceived. This was their problem. They were self-deceived. Notice verse 17, but you say... I am rich, and I have become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. Jesus says to them, listen, here, here's your problem. You're self-deceived. You say, you say with your mouth, we're rich. I believe he's talking about their they're thinking about their own spiritual or their own physical resources. They had all the physical resources that they would need. And that led them to believe that because they were physically taken care of, because in somehow in their religious mindset, God was the one who brought all that. So because they were physically rich, they were also spiritually rich, they thought. We don't struggle. God must be on our side. Christ says, no. You don't know that you're wretched, miserable, Poor, blind, and naked. Christ says, you're poor. You, you say you're rich, but you're really poor. You say you don't have need of anything, but really you, you, you think that, that you're, this desire, this, this love for, this satisfaction in your own wealth, that, that you, you're okay, you have no need for anything, that you're happy and that you're secure. You, you have convinced yourself, you're self-deceived in those things. You think that that's the place of security. Right says the reality is you're wretched, miserable, blind, and naked. They're so self-deceived, they can't even tell where they're at. And this is this is instructive for us, beloved. But listen, we need to we need to mark this down. We need to lock it in a place in our own hearts. Listen, spiritual apathy, lukewarmness, spiritual apathy is always characterized by self-confident self-satisfaction. Spiritual apathy is always characterized by self-confidence and self-satisfaction. Those who are spiritually apathetic say, maybe not in words, but they say with their lives, I don't need God. I don't need man. I don't need anybody. I don't need anything. I'm complete and self-sufficient in myself. Or maybe I could get a little closer to our own kitchen. No, no, I'm all set. I'm all set. That was the collective spirit of the church in Laodicea. They weren't hot. They weren't cold. They were just religious. No relationship to Jesus Christ, just religious. And then in verses 18 through 20, we get Christ's counsel to the church. Notice verse 18, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, that you might become rich, white garments that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. 
He says, listen, listen, here's the fix to your situation. Yeah, I'm sickened by you, but here's the fix. What a gracious God. I mean, most of us, if we were doing this, this is why, partly why I read Psalm 55 or Isaiah 55 this morning, God is not like us, because if we were doing this, if it was us making decisions about this, we wouldn't offer this solution. We just go, listen, you're lukewarm. You make me sick. Get out of here. And yet God being gracious, God being who he is, the very character of God, the amen, the faithful witness, the beginning of all creation says to them, this church that makes him sick, listen, I'm going to give you some advice. I'm going to help. I I, I really want to help you. I want to help fix your situation. Buy true riches from me. Don't be self-deceived. Buy true riches from me. Get white garments. Get a pure garment from me. Have your eyes opened by me. I find it ironic that this community that boasted in its riches and its fine clothes and its medicine and all of these kinds of things, Christ uses all of those things and links all of that to their very spiritual condition. Buy true riches from me. Get that covering from me. I want you to have spiritual wealth. You, you, yes, you have physical wealth, and you think that you did all of that. I'm the one who blessed it. I'm the one who is the beginning of creation. I'm the one who bestows all of those things, but you recognize me not. I, I want you to have true spiritual wealth because you don't have any, even though you believe you do. You don't have any. You're actually poor, I want you to be clothed in purity, the white garments, because you don't have any personal righteousness. You think you're good, but you're you're not. I want you to have spiritual eyes, because right now you're spiritually blind. You're uncovered. You're laid open. Here's who you really are. What a blessing of God to show us who we really are so that we might turn to Him. You say, but wait, pastor, I thought we couldn't buy a spiritual life. I mean, Jesus says, right? Come to me, buy from me. I thought we couldn't buy that. You're talking about a spiritual life. You're talking about not the physical life, that the physical life can't help us. But here, here's Jesus himself saying, I advise you to buy from me. I thought we couldn't buy that. I thought we couldn't buy spirituality. The answer to that question is really easy. We can't. We cannot buy it. So here's what Christ is saying. Just listen from the words of Isaiah 55, verse 1. Just listen. Oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. You say, well, that really helped. You just confused me more. How in the world can I buy without money? I mean, if we're going to buy, and, 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 and Isaiah 55 says, come buy, how do I buy something without money? Listen, the only way and the only commodity you have to buy with is the only thing you do is you come with your own lostness and you relinquish your lostness to Christ. You believe upon Him. Receive true riches from Christ. Jesus is simply saying, come and relinquish yourself. Come and relinquish yourself and have faith in me alone. You say, really? Is that what he's talking about? Just relinquishing yourself? Well, turn, turn back for a moment to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. We're about to embark upon a study of Luke here in another few weeks. And so I can talk about Luke 14 now because we're not going to get to it for years. And you'll forget it all anyway. Because there'll be so much stacked upon it. You'll go, I think we talked about this before. 
Notice Jesus Christ talking about discipleship. Beginning in verse 25, a great multitude was going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me, that's just another way of saying, you come to Jesus and say, I believe. I believe in Jesus Christ. I want to follow you. I want to be a follower of yours. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me, doesn't hate his own father and his own mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. You say, wow, that's pretty harsh. I mean, you want me to to have a relationship here whereby everything in relationship to me on a human level seems to be substandard, that the devotion to them seems to be less than my devotion to you. And if I don't have that, I cannot be your disciple. And the word hate there is meseo in the original. It's to love less. Christ has to be a greater love than anything else by way of relationship. So that, that's the first thing. I have to have this relationship issue. I have to relinquish that. Whoever doesn't carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So now, now it comes to me personally. So, so the relationships, I, I have to have this position by which they're lesser in, in a love relationship than my devotion to Jesus Christ. And then, and then when it comes to me, I have to have this reality and this, this understanding that my life matters not, that even if death comes upon me, the carrying of the cross, the symbol of death, if I don't carry that every day, the reality that I am nothing, I can't be, so, so my position with Christ is not an equal position. I'm a subordinate, submissive person under Christ. I can't be his disciple. I have to relinquish that. Then he gives this illustration for which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, doesn't first sit down, calculate the cost, see if he first enough has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation, it's not able to finish. All who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying the man began to build, but he wasn't able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down, take counsel whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming at him with 20,000, or else while the other is still away, he sends a delegation to ask for terms of peace. Right? So there's this, now I have to calculate the cost. I have to think about it. I have to, every issue that comes up, I, I got to calculate the reality of the cost of that in relationship to my relationship with Jesus Christ. So therefore, verse 33, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. He's not talking about just tossing all the things you own out on the street and saying, I give it all up. He's saying, listen, relinquish your grasp on everything that you find important. Because in none of that is discipleship of Jesus Christ. You have to relinquish all your own resources. If you don't do that, you're just religious without relationship. You're like salt without saltiness. You're only good for the manure pile. And notice what he says at the end. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That seems like similar language, doesn't it? Similar language to what he said in Revelation. He who has ears, let him hear. Come to me. In other words, turn your back on yourself. Turn your back on your own self-sufficiency. Turn your back on, your, on who you are and your grab and your hold on your own self-righteousness and by faith in Christ you will get His righteousness. Come buy from me. Bring what you have. You have nothing. You have lostness. That's all you have. Come. I'll take it all. I'll take all your lostness and give you righteousness. So that you might be rich, that you might have white garments, that you might clothe yourself, that the shame of your nakedness might not be revealed, that your eye salve will anoint your eyes, the, the true salve. See, you, you, you think you're, you're secure and safe by means of science. You think all the medical science that you've acquired and come about is the thing that really protects you. You rely way too much on science. He says, no, come to me. 
I'm the one you must rely on. Rely on that. You know what the cure for apathy is? Repentance. Repentance. Notice what he says, verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous therefore and repent. Be zealous therefore and repent. Listen, this is, a, this is an appeal to them for real genuine faith. Real genuine faith. He's calling them to repentance just like he has done with all the other churches that we've read about. He's calling them to repent. And listen, beloved, it doesn't matter if you're an apathetic unbeliever who is deceived by your own religion. It doesn't matter if you're in that category or a, or a sinning, self-sufficient, actual believer. The... The remedy is the same. A zealousness for repentance. That's the remedy. The idea is a constant turning from self to this turning to Jesus Christ by faith. It's the relinquishing, like Luke 14, of our own resources. The relial upon self. Listen, they were lukewarm because they they weren't either hot or cold. They were in the middle because that's what they did. They just relied upon themselves. Jesus says, listen, you need to be zealous for repentance. Then he says, verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Now, by God's grace and mercy, I've been in the church, evangelical church, for 53 of my 58 years of life. Probably a little longer than that. I didn't couldn't remember things prior to that. Since I was a small boy. And I have heard and I have seen all kinds of illustrations in reference to Revelation 3.20. And it is always used as a verse in evangelism. Just like 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us your sins. Yes, that's true. And certainly if an unbeliever confesses their sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But in the context of 1 John, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the character and attitude of a Christian. Revelation 3.20 is a verse that people use all the time in evangelism. Here's God standing at the door of your heart, just knocking, waiting to come in. If you just open it up. That's an interesting way to say it. I know what people mean by that. They're trying to actually say, listen, if you just believe upon Jesus, he'll, he'll come into your life and, and carry out your life. Submitting, You can submit to him. He'll give you new life. You'll be alive in Christ. And I know they're, they're trying to, to get that across, but they don't understand sometimes that this verse is not talking about that. So can I be both so bold to say that in the context of Revelation chapter 3, he's saying nothing about the heart of man? The door that Christ is knocking at is a metaphorical door, and it's the door of the church, not the door of the heart. In other words, there is a separation in relationship here in the Laodicean reality with the church. There's a, there's a relationship problem that the church has, and Christ wants the relationship with His church. Now, we could get nitty-gritty about this, and we could say, well, didn't you say the church is made up of people and we're individuals, and so therefore can't we say that Christ is standing at the door of each individual heart and knocking? Well, well, sure, we can say that, but let's remember that we have nothing to do and cannot let Christ in. We have no ability to open the door any more so than a dead corpse can have the ability, has the ability to push the coffin open. We cannot. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. So we, we can't open the door. There's a separation in relationship. 
In fact, there are many churches that Christ may be claimed, that Christ may be professed, but in reality, he's on the outside. And he wouldn't be recognized, in fact, on the inside. Christ wants into the apathetic church. You know what opens the door? God's gift of repentance. Repentance opens the door. And that is a gift of God. And notice, notice that the apathetic church can change when the apathetic Christian changes. Because he does say, behold, I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears. So there's a collective reality and there's an individual reality. We understand that as the church. There's a collective corporate nature to the church and there is an individual reality within the church of each and every one of us. Abandon your self-sufficient, God my way, God on my terms kind of religion. Turn from the, that way to the only way. That's what Christ is saying. I desire fellowship, a restored fellowship, a renewed fellowship, a new fellowship. I will come and I will dine with him and he with me. In other words, there'll be this restored relationship. We will be at table together. You see, the the church is collective. The church is collective, but the church doesn't repent as a collective. The church begins repentance as an individual. Starts with just one. If somebody will repent of their foolishness, Christ says, that's where it begins. I'll have fellowship with the church before the night of judgment falls. He says in verse 21, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. Just as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. I wanted to go into this further, but because we're short on time, just let me say what that means. Christ is simply saying, I will lift you up to sit with me in the heavenlies. That's what he's saying. It's Ephesians 1 in a sentence. Right? Ephesians 1, all who are in Christ are seated with him in the heavenlies. So this is a promise of future glory. When you're in Christ, when you're with Christ, when you're not lukewarm... You're seated with Christ in the heavenlies, just as Ephesians 1 says. He doesn't say, I'll let you into heaven and you can be up there and as some kind of afterthought. Oh, oh yeah, oh, by the way, there's no significance at all. No, he says, I'll take you to the throne and I will seat you with me on the throne. That's an incredible thought. Somehow, according to God's plan and purposes, every church-age Christian is going to be with Christ on His throne. Don't ask me how to explain that. I can't. You say, how does that work, Pastor? I'll say that answer. I don't know. There, I'm off the pedestal. You might have had me on. I don't know. Can't explain it. What a promise. Right? What an incredible privilege for us as worthless sinners, right? To sit with Christ on His throne, which is God's throne. I will exalt you in due time. I'll exalt you in due time. I, I think this is in part what He means. You'll sit down with me, He who overcomes. And then he ends with those familiar words. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the question comes again, as we have kind of asked a question at the end of each of these churches that we've talked about. Are we listening? Right? He who has ear, which would imply that we're listening. All seven of these churches exist today in some kind of attitudinal way. All of them. 
There are faithful churches just like Smyrna and Philadelphia today. There are churches that have a diminishing devotion for Christ. And that fire needs to be rekindled just like it did in Ephesus. There are churches like Pergamum that refuse to deal with sin. They say, listen, church discipline doesn't work, so we just don't do it. Compromise with the world. We'll just be like them. We'll just tolerate things. There are churches like Thyatira that don't deal with it. Sadly, there are churches like Sardis. Only a few believers left. And there are apathetic churches like Laodicea. But to every one of them, the fix is the same. The fix is the same. Lord, He says to the churches, repent and take the steps to make it right. Take the steps to make it right. Sadly, beloved, I'm convinced of this, that on the, on the final day when the church is raptured, the church will be the most shocked place of the world. Because the street is a whole lot more narrow than people think. And there will be churches, after the church is raptured, filled with people who do not know Jesus Christ. Who always thought they did. Self-made, man-made religion. I trust none of us will be there in that way on that day. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what a blessing. What a blessing to have warning. Oh, how warning protects us from danger. So many ways, so many subtle, overt, covert ways that we could be compromised in our own life and our own thinking. Help us to remain close to your word. That's the only thing that will protect us. The philosophies of men are just that. Self-deceptions about their own making. They worship the creature rather than the creator. We don't want to be taken captive by that. We don't want to be tossed to and fro by every wind of so-called doctrine that comes down the pipe. Father, we just want to be absorbed and saturated in your word. Know your word in such a way that we would be reflectors of it in everything we do, everything we say, how we think, challenging anything and everything around us that doesn't equate itself with the truth. Not standing with it, albeit with grace, hoping that maybe even through it, some would be snatched from the fire. Lord, we love the truth of your word. We love your word. Help it be reflected in our lives that we do. That we might not individually or corporately be lukewarm. And we'll praise you in the end. We'll certainly glorify your name unto eternity. So we thank you for this day. Use us, we pray, unto your glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.